It's September 14th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's headlines in the world of acquisition. First one we got, at Next Project's Convergence, seven scenarios will test American tech against adversaries, Defense News. By pulling the joint together, the joint force, the exercise is slated to grow from about 500 to 600 participants to roughly 7,000, with more than 900 data collectors, Richardson said. The Army has organized its, five, or its major live fire exercises at Project Convergence into seven use cases focused on carrying out missions in the first and second island chain to the Indo-Pacific region. The first use case focuses on my maintaining joint all-domain situational awareness, including tapping into space sensors in low Earth orbit, uh, joint air and missile defense engagement following an enemy missile attack, while the third is a joint fires operation as force transitions from crisis to conflict. The fourth use case is sen semi-autonomous resupply. Fifth, experiment with artificial intel intelligence and autonomy-enabled reconnaissance. Sixth, uh, a replay of Edge 21, where the IVAS integrated visual augmentation system enabled air assault mission. And the final will be mounted AI-enabled attack. So a bunch of interesting things here. The first three are joint. Um, and then the, the four remaining ones are kind of like army specific and a little bit more um, future oriented, a lot of kind of AI stuff. But and some of them, you know, we've, we've talked about before the air assault with the IVAS um, to kind of do re recon and see what's going on up, up front. So, you know, I think it's interesting. Army's doing cool stuff and I'm pretty happy to see these happening. Right. Yeah, this is the, it's pretty interesting. I mean, they, they really threw a lot in the basket here. I mean, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. Some of these ones for the, you know, the Pacific theater, they've, you know, they've recognized that the geography is, is not necessarily, you know, conducive for the army. Um, so they have to find, you know, different ways of doing the deep fires uh, capability and, uh, you know, maybe operating from, from different islands that might be enemy occupied. But, well, I agree that it seems like there was a lot going on, but the first three joint ones, it's like, all domain situational awareness, air and missile defense, and then joint fires. So those all three kind of like seem to yeah. go together, right? Like, um, I'm, I'm not really sure how coherent the whole thing was, but um, makes sense. But even, but even within those, right, like um, air and missile defense, like, you know, the Army and MDA, uh, you know, they have to bring MDA into it. So it really is a, yeah. that's a pretty robust mission set joint fires operation where, you know, you have to deconflict, um, you know, F-35s, I guess, so the Air Force will be bringing F-35s and B-1s, and the Navy will be bringing its SM-6, the Marine Corps is going to be bringing its Gator radar, uh, that's pretty capable, and then the Army will have uh, some different things, uh, the IBCS that we talked about before. So yeah, that's, that's going to be just by itself, like, um, making all of that work together is going to be a real, uh, That'll be a real test. It's going to be interesting to see. I, 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 we probably won't get the real, you know, the real full report here because it'll probably be a lot of classified stuff. But definitely look forward to hearing how successful or, you know, whatever challenges they're willing to share. Um, but the fourth, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, uh, and seventh case are also pretty interesting. Uh, so even once you get back to just the army-focused ones, semi-autonomous resupply. You know, um, looking at how if you're stuck on some of these Pacific islands to, you know, you're, you're doing your thing and you, you need resupply, you know, how can you do that with minimizing, you know, uh, risk to, to uh, manned aircraft? 
And so, yeah, that'll be interesting to see what things they bring to bear there. Um, is our AI autonomy reconnaissance, that kind of, that kind of seems pretty straightforward, but then doing some stuff with an IVAS uh, air assault mission, that'll be interesting. I, I assume they'll have like paratroopers, you know, with IVAS that are expected to kind of get all of their mission information from, from the IVAS. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. And um, yeah, AI, AI attack. So yeah, lots to learn here. This will be, this will be a good one. And on the semi-autonomous resupply, I wonder what that actually means. You know, like the, yeah. the, or the army has a whole bunch of watercraft, right? Like hundreds of them, apparently. So I wonder if they're talking about that, or I think you were thinking like from the air or. They said ahead. they're working, they've been developing an autonomous Blackhawk. So I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be that, that using the leader follower technology, you know, that we, uh, we're, we're familiar with from our army, uh, army friends, uh, up in Michigan. So I think they, they, they've been working on installing that on some Blackhawks. I could see it being a, a fleet of Blackhawks coming in. Oh, that would be interesting. Um, and it would be an interesting use of Blackhawks, right? Like right. that would be a, like resupply through Blackhawk would be kind of, uh, intensive there. Well, I guess if it's unmanned, if it's, if it's unmanned and um, it has some defensive system, maybe it's kind of the perfect, perfect thing because it can defend itself somewhat. It's not totally vulnerable. Um, and, and the, but at the same time, if it's unmanned, they can probably pull a lot of the safety stuff out of there and, and get, more, uh, get more room for supplies maybe. But yeah, no. But yeah, but the M, you know, the M Blackhawk, it's got all that sweet survivability stuff that I'm sure people, but that thing costs quite a bit. I think it's like $25 million or something yeah. for, for one of those. They're not, they're not exactly cheap, no. <laughs> you know, just like little <laughs> cargo things that you can just throw around. So, um, yeah. so we'll stick with project convergence here. Project convergence exercise shows value or shows value in data weapons check for digital age from breaking defense. It was kind of a, an interesting article, but the one piece that I pulled out of here was when it comes to the implementation of joint all domain operations, a single network architecture becomes unfeasible from both a defensive and offensive standpoint. Instead, services operational architectures need to be resiliently layered with common data exchange standards. Um, so I think that's kind of like on the kind of technological, technological philosophical aspect there of how joint all domain will actually come together. Uh, do you see that kind of being the same way that you're just going to have, you know, multiple different services going out uh, just pursuing their own kind of networks as they already are. No one's going to stop them, right? Dead in their tracks to get everything aligned to a common architecture. And maybe the best we can do here is uh, work on data exchange standards and you know proper documentation and, and kind of figure it out and mission integration or otherwise. Well, I, I, I don't, the one thing is, I will say is uh, joint staff, the J6, they are definitely trying um, uh, oh, I, for, already for, I forget the general's name, but we, we talked about him last week. What was it? General Cross. Oh, yes, exactly. So his shop, they, they are trying to map this out, right? It's no easy task, um, especially since, you know, new programs, yes, you can say new programs will do these certain things, but, uh, you know, you do have a lot of legacy systems. And so, you know, not everything can be done at once. And so, yeah, that is that is a problem, but it is something that I think OSD is trying to take a, a, a joint look at to say, okay, let's not, uh, let's not super stovepipe ourselves. Let's try to find, you know, let's try to find data exchange standards that we can all kind of agree with. The, the architectures will not completely align, but 
you know, how can we kind of get the best, you know, the best solution? So I think there's still a lot of work going on in that space. That's going to be the heart of JADC2, right? But getting the data in the right in, in the right repositories, getting these data standards that can, you know, talk between systems, getting the networking stuff that can that can talk between F35 and F22 kind of thing. So there's there's a lot still to be done here. But I think I think the point is right. You know, you you do you do have to start working towards this vision and, and having um, you know a, a moving towards a single network architecture that uh, um, that can that can you know that can work that can work together to be able to share and you know be timely for for the for the data that the different platforms need. So yeah, we'll see you know what happens out of there and and how DARPA is contributing to that and how it all comes together. Yeah. I'm sure tons more to talk about there. What Blue Origin's failure to launch means for Boeing and Lockheed Motley Fool. Three years ago, United Launch Alliance made a fateful choice. The spacefaring joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing would design its new Vulcan space rocket around a new BE-4 engine being designed by Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rocket company. In doing so, ULA officially passed on Aerojet Rocketdyne and hitched his fortunes to Blue Origin um, instead. Neither the BE-4 nor the AR-1 are actually ready to fly today. Um, as a result, ULA customer Astrobotic, uh, which has signed up for the Vulcan's inaugural launch customer, must wait yet another year. Uh, this, But here's the thing. ULA must complete two non-national security uh, missions before it can actually do anything in the Department of Defense to certify its missions for the Space Force. So they were already awarded a contract for FY22 through 27 to do uh, launches for the Space Force. I guess as part of, part of that they got to do two non-national security or com commercial type um, launches or actually international, just non-national security. Uh, and I guess <laughs> those things are going to slip. So potentially the whole, the whole shebang is going to slip. And so, you know, more, more trouble for Blue Origins. Of course, we've been hearing in the news, the, the kind of back and forth between Bezos and, and uh, Elon Musk, where Elon Musk is kind of getting kind of tired. Some people say he doesn't want to play by the rules and others say like <laughs> Bezos doesn't want, you know, Elon Musk to be kind of innovating out ahead of him. So um, it's some, just some interesting space news there. Yeah. I mean, this isn't easy stuff. So, you know, probably I was trying to, I was trying to get some details on the status of the AR-1. So, you know, if they had actually gone that way, would it have been better? And it was kind of, it was kind of hard to tell. Uh, they're, they're definitely, you know, they're actually working on the A3 too. So, and I guess, um, you know, the A3 is having, you know, some issues. So yeah, it's hard to, hard to tell exactly how the, how the, how the program would have gone if they had made the other selection, but definitely sad to see that, uh, you know, SpaceX is going to have some real competition here because this will be, you know, if ULA misses this, I mean, where else, where else, uh, the, the article made the point that Secretary Kendall said, if uh, Blue Origin's late, they'll have, they have other options. Oh, where else are they going to go? You know, so um, so yeah. Let's hope they can sort of get back on track and and actually be able to you know be able to have some competition. But it sounds like they have they have a lot lot ahead of them there. To uh, what is their what did they say their missions were? They were going to do a uh, resupply to the ISS. Yeah. So yeah. So they have some stuff ahead of them to make make that uh, make that happen and get back on track. Yeah, it's. Uh... I don't think uh, Rocket Lab or any of those other competitors are quite ready yet. You know, it'd be interesting. You know, ULA has never had a rocket launch failure, right? Blow up on the pad or anything like that. So 
you know, it'll be interesting, especially since Blue Origin's a little bit untested. You know, there might be some kind of risk. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if ULA ever, if, you know, when that first one happens, because it's kind of sometimes hard to say, like, you know, a perfect streak will go forever. But if it happens and it happens sooner rather than later, then that could be, that could really blow up in their face. But not that that will happen. That's very big speculation. So we'll, actually, we'll, you, make a, you make a good point there, though, Eric. Like, if, if they take the approach, the, the super risk averse approach of, um, of, you know, kind of testing it to death in the lab before ever doing it because, you know, they don't want the bad press of, of having something happen, you know, during a, a test lunch. Um, so they, they take a real risk averse approach. Um, it will be interesting to compare that with kind of the approach that SpaceX has taken. So, you know, yeah, SpaceX has had to deal with the optics of, you know, things not landing right and things blowing up and fires, you know, starting, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to kind of compare those two, like how long, how long, how long extra, how much, how much more time does it take to kind of de-risk and not have those types of, uh, of real world kind of testing events that sometimes blow up in your face, uh, how much more time does it take, right? Like it won't be a perfect analogy, but it would be an interesting comparison. Like if it takes them years and years beyond, you know, the, the approach that SpaceX took, but well, yeah, they, you know, suppose we're now kind of slated for 22, but like, who knows, like those things have a, uh, yeah. you know, they just keep going further and further away from you as you get closer and closer to it. So next one we got Northrop Grumman unveils model 437 loyal wingman concept from Flight Global. The model 437 is based on the model 401 Sierra low cost manufacturing technology demonstrator aircraft, which was developed by scaled composites with funding from the USAF Northrop is proposing development of an unmanned version of the model 401 that could be built in about 14 months and then test flown to advance the model 437 concept. Scale Composites has on average developed and flown one new aircraft per year for the last 39 years, including the Voyager, the first aircraft to fly around the world without stopping, and Spaceship One, the first privately developed and flown spaceship. Northrop is aiming for a unit price of the model 437 of five to seven million. The bulk of that cost would come from the more powerful Williams International turbofan engine, which the firm says is priced around 2.4 million. So a bunch of interesting stuff there. Scale composites, you know, that's pretty impressive. Uh, developing and flying an aircraft once every year for 39 years straight, and it looks like uh, Northrop Grumman is going to kind of, you know, take over some of this and uh, kind of develop it for military means and potentially entering the skyboard race here with their kind of a tritable drone. Um, so interesting stuff, more, more competition on that front. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it is, uh, it is interesting. I had, I mean, I heard of scaled composites and then the spaceship one, but man, I did not realize they had done that for the past 39 years it is it's really impressive. Um, I guess we need to keep keep our eye on them. They seem to, uh, seem to be moving out here in the, in the drone, um, the advanced drone kind of market. Um, so yeah, a couple of things I took away from the rest of that article and doing a couple other research is, uh, so they're doing, yeah, they're also teaming with the Royal Air Force to have a uh, lightweight, affordable, novel combat aircraft program. thought that was kind of interesting. So there's some international uh, work going on there. And the, uh, yeah, the fact that uh, they're already looking at, so with this, with this wingman stuff, I kind of always viewed it as more of a, 
you have some radar kind of capabilities, uh, you know, have the ability to maybe do some EW stuff, like electronic stuff, but never really thought they'd get into having a lot of weapons um, and especially not having an internal bomb bed. So that, that was one thing with the, uh, the 401, the precursor to the 437 here, they actually had um, the ability to have two AIM-120s in there, uh, so uh, two AMRAMs. So that, that's pretty interesting. And they actually can carry up to 2,000 pounds of payload. So these are not, um, these are not small aircraft or not, you know, not, not, not low capability aircraft. And given the price tag, it's a, that's pretty impressive. Um, so that was one thing. And they also have about a 3,000 kilometer range. And uh, let's see here, what else? A 533 knot cruise speed. So they can basically go, they can keep pace with the F-35. And in some cases they can dash faster and actually go and act as an advanced, kind of an advanced wingman uh, to, uh, to scan the, you know, scan the airspace and kind of characterize what's, what's going on before you have a manned aircraft kind of enter. So that's, that's, that's really useful. Last thing that, that I thought was kind of interesting is that Kratos with the sky, their solution actually has a rail launcher and a parachute to land. Whereas Kratos kind of envisions landing on a, um, actually have land, having landing gear and being able to, being able to take off and land on a uh, 914 meter long runway. So kind of, kind of interesting, the different sort of, kind of characteristics of some of these, these new advanced drone offerings. It's kind of uh, definitely going to be a, some, 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 something to watch as, uh, as more competitors into the space. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So we got, you know, Kratos, GE and urgent, sorry, <laughs> general atomics, so GAA there and, and Boeing kind of in the, in the mix there for Skyborg, it looks like Northrop might enter, enter, you know, I'm wondering if we're going to kind of get this same level of, uh, of competition on the autonomy core system front, right? Well, I think, right. I think the idea with the autonomy core system was that it could be plugged into any of these. So maybe you have, maybe you have a single ACS, but you can use it. Maybe, maybe you buy, I mean, what I would love to see, Eric, is I'd love to see like, you know, let's not, let's, let's not just pick one winner here and call it a day. Let's buy, um, let's do a competition by, uh, you know, 40% of one, 30% of another, 20% of another. Let's like, let's keep these, keep these companies engaged in the space. Yeah. But um, let me, let me challenge you on that. Cause it's like, okay. in, in my view, okay, fine. Let's, we can have it in the airframe, but the airframe is kind of like the older, less risky thing, right? Isn't the newer, higher risk thing that we need the competition in for the autonomy core system? Well, that's definitely the harder piece, but I do think there's something to be said for kind of advancing, especially for tradable stuff, you know, yeah, the Air Force has that range of two to 20 million, but you definitely don't want to have a lot of $20 million tradable aircraft. But if you could get something really capable that has long range, has uh, a lot of like an internal payload, you know, high, high payload capacity, you might want to start, you might want to keep advancing that state of the art. So if you get to a point where the hardware is stabilized and you don't think you're going to get like a lot of advancements, you just kind of have reached a point. Yeah. Then I kind of agree with you, but I, I still think there's a lot of, there's a lot of room here for, for improvement on, you know, driving down costs, driving, you know, maybe uh, manufacturing efficiency, and, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So you might want to keep at least a few, a few of these vendors in the space. I do kind of feel like if the air force goes all in on one, you're going to really kind of discourage almost like Northrop and the fighter, you know, the fighter world, 
you know, they basically just said, okay, we're, we're done. You know, we're not, we're not going to bother with you guys anymore. So I don't know. That was my only point, but yeah, I, I hear you. But also how much money is available for doing this type of stuff as well. You know, it's like, where do you need the diversity? You want to have diversity everywhere, of course. Um, but then you have to also kind of husband your resources. So point taken, we will <laughs> keep moving on with, uh, some, uh, some Northrop news. Northrop Grumman demonstrates connectivity for long-range command and control, Northrop Grumman. Uh, dem- so they've demonstrated a data link for connecting aircraft in highly contested airspace for long-range command and control through open architecture network. The flight demonstration linked the Skilled Composites Proteus, a high-altitude, long-endurance research aircraft with a Firebird, an unmanned air vehicle with the capability to be flown manned, through an advanced line of sight dated link with low probability of intercept, low probability of detection characteristics that include anti-jam properties. So here we go again, you know, it's a little bit more Northrop news and they're actually kind of using scaled composites again here um, in, the, in these tests. But it's also interesting, I didn't really hear uh, like a defense program that this was necessarily linked to. So it seems like this was kind of like IR&D for things that they know that the military is going to be wanting to do as part of their kind of like networking stuff, right? Yeah, this seems, this doesn't seem tied. I, I, I was with you. I couldn't exactly tie it to um, a particular program. There, there has been a demand signal, I think, for being able to connect, like we were just talking about, being able to connect some different platforms. You know, F-22 and F-35 still can't talk to, talk to each other. So having something that can serve as a, uh, a network hub kind of for that. And they definitely seem to be doing a lot of stuff with this particular aircraft, connecting back to um, through a 5G network. So kind of testing out that, doing a prototype multi-level security switch. So you can transfer different uh, levels of classification. And and then also um, a low probability of intercept, low probability detection with anti-jam. Typically those- Doesn't the 5G seem a little bit at odds with long range? Or is that just my imagination? I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, no, I don't, that's a good point. I, I, I don't know exactly what how they had that spec, but I mean, some of these characteristics like LPI, um, uh, low probability of intercept, usually those kind of things are lower lower bandwidth and and such. So, yeah, I don't know what the what the range was here, but you would think high altitude they had to have a decent range to be able to kind of do this it also needs to be survivable so it's kind of interesting to me that this the way they talked about this was something that would be in uh, maybe a contested domain so i don't know if it's flying at just such high altitudes it would be you know be out of the typical threat the threat zone but if that was the case you would have to have some pretty pretty good power on there to uh yet yeah, to, to manage all that all that bandwidth yeah yeah, no, definitely. So we'll see how that slots in in the future. Next one, we got F-16 wing production line from 1980s reopened amid new demand from aerospace manufacturing. An assembly line originally established in the 1980s for the F-16 wings for Lockheed Martin has resumed production at Israel Aerospace Industries, IAI. The line was recently reopened following an increased worldwide demand for F-16 Block 7072. The company will produce F-16 wings that will be shipped for for final assembly in Greenville, South Carolina. Now IAI is producing outer wing boxes for advanced F-35 and the wings for the F-16 fighters, both having new customers and growing numbers worldwide. 
So interesting stuff, you know, Israel's building the wing. The wing is basically the most important and complex part of the aircraft, right? So um, a lot of the value is actually being generated out of Israel at this point um, for, for the F-16. And, you know, I guess that's, and then they'll ship it back for final assembly in South Carolina. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I doubt the U.S. will ever, you know, buy F-16s again, but it's good that there's still that capability <laughs> and other partners are buying it just in case, uh, you know, we, we can wait until NGAD comes online and then we can kind of you know, start when we see what that actually means and what it is, then we can maybe, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, the F-16 is a great aircraft. It's, um, it's, a, it's, it's generally fairly, fairly simple, um, you know, easy, easy to maintain and has a long history. So a lot of countries sort of have already have experience with it. They're selling, they're, they're selling this block. It, it's uh, some of the countries that are like Indonesia and Philippines, which you don't normally associate with sort of advanced aircraft, but, um, but I guess, you know, they're trying to beef up their forces and, and this is a, this is a pretty capable. It looks like some of these capability upgrades that are in the 70, the block 7072 are, are, are fairly, um, you know, fairly cutting edge. So they, they have uh, new AESA radars in there, which are very, very capable, long range, you know, can do multi-targets, new avionics architecture, structural upgrades. Uh, the actual the structural upgrades, they say, extend the life of the aircraft by more than 50% um, of, of previous F-16. So that's pretty substantial. What's interesting though, is the only price tag I could really find was that uh, about 64 million a pop. So it does sort of, beg the question a little bit. I know Indonesia and Philippine aren't, they're not approved for F-35s, but it does sort of beg the question of like, are potential F-35 customers that could buy an F-35 for 90 million and they buy an F-16s for 64 million. So there is, there is kind of a business case there at some point, but yeah, I guess it, I guess it makes sense for, for a lot of countries to kind of get in, get in this space. And then, yeah, like you said, move on to and then there's also the, I guess, workforce competence and ability, and then the maintain maintenance costs, right? So it's yeah. not just it's not, not just investment costs, true, true. right? Like, you know, being able to maintain an F thirty five ain't going to be <laughs> an easy thing to do, uh, as we've read about, right? <laughs> most definitely. Space Force expects one billion in contracts in the first year of the Space Enterprise Consortium Reloaded Defense News from twenty seventeen through about the end. 2020, the consortium issued a total of just 856 million in contracts. For context, for context, the Space Force requested 17 billion for the entire service in fiscal 2022. Uh, OTAs have been used to develop new ground systems, a Link 16 enabled space vehicle, and more. Last count, we were just shy of 600 companies that are a part of the Space Enterprise Consortium. About 80% of the members are non-traditional, he added, with almost 60% of the award going to those companies. RF. So, and they're also saying the RFP, so the, re, the request for proposal time to award um, is about 40% faster than the FAR based contracts, which is interesting. You know, like most of, most of the folks I've talked to kind of say like OTAs aren't necessarily about going faster, but they are about, you know, being able to bring in those non-traditional contractors. Uh, but, you know, getting a billion dollars in the space enterprise consortium after a little bit of a hiccup when they moved the consortium managers you know, it's pretty impressive that they're able to ramp that up and hopefully they can do what they were kind of saying a year or two ago. They wanted to 24X, you know, the amount of dollars going through that Space Enterprise Consortium. Uh, I don't know if they've gotten to there. I've actually looked at their ceilings are incredibly high <laughs> on these OTAs, but they just haven't obligated all that much. But, you know, moving through. 
And so good stuff from there from the Space Force. Yeah, I always do find it interesting when they throw out stats like that, because, you know, one thing we've never had for FAR contracts is a consortium. You know, yeah. I, I, I bet that if there was a, a FAR Part 12 consortium, you, you could probably get those through pretty fast, too, because you you kind of have an organization that's, you know, all like geared basically to just award contracts. And so, right. um, you know, they're doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting for the government. And, you know, if you look at, if you actually look at spec and some of the stuff that they, that they actually do, I mean, they, they really, they really are driving the process. Like they basically have their whole, um, you know, their whole, the whole process that they kind of run, run their companies through Like really. they do the discovery and they refine the RFP and, you know, they've gotten really, really good kind of at doing that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it is kind of funny to say, you know, is it because of OTA or is it because you have a consortium that's specialized and focused on that and they have companies that basically kind of have to do with what they say <laughs> so um so yeah that, that's interesting the other piece though is i still you know th- this company in particular this consortium i think will probably get the most scrutiny just because of how fast they've grown and how big they are with like some of the nda language around better reporting for, for these consortiums because it's, it has been a little bit of a black box. Um, maybe somebody has insight, but they're, they're not publishing a lot of stuff on who's getting the awards, how's the selections done uh, and all of that. So yeah, I do think it's, it, it, this may be, they may be a, um, sort of a punished for their own success a little bit by getting a little more of our scrutiny here in the, in, in the coming months and years, but, but yeah, good stuff. I mean, it's supporting the space enterprise and doing things faster and that's what we want. So. Well, hopefully it doesn't slow them down too much. Navy arming surface ships with drone repellent system from USNI News. The drone restricted access using known electromagnetic warfare system or Drake being built by Northrop Grumman. And this is in a Northrop Grumman advertisement again. <laughs> um, originally used on Humvees during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is now used across the Navy surface fleet. What this does is it repels drones based on the frequency that they use. So it has pre-programmed frequencies that are commonly used frequencies amongst drones and it has the ability to just stop the signal from going, uh, Mendenhall said. It won't necessarily knock them out of the sky, but what it will do, like I said, is as soon as, as they hit the wall, they can't go any further. So, you know, here's an interesting thing that they're, they're doing. It seems like the range is pretty short because they're kind of talking about they got to walk it to the front end of the ship to kind of encounter if a drone is encountered there. So it seems like it's pretty, um, and of course, you know, what it's come from for Humvees, they didn't really potentially need the same kind of range. So I wonder, you know, how effective this thing is in reality, but, you know, they're experimenting with counter UAS, you know, you gotta, gotta be happy for that. Yeah. It almost, it sounded to me a little bit when I was, uh, when reading this article that it was more about like when you're in the shipyard and, and they're having a bunch of people with drones go, hey, I want to go check out the Navy ships that are in the harbor and like sending their drones out there. Uh, so it almost sort of sounded like a, a harbor kind of thing, you know, just, you know, when you have, when you have your ship dock, you want to keep, uh, you know, people intruding on your stuff. But um, I think, you know, as we get into more advanced UAVs, I mean, and, and especially with like, you know, uh, you know, with an enemy competitor, this is this this kind of thing will probably need to become quite quite a you know a lot more advanced. Um, there'll be countermeasures and things like that. Yeah, it does sound kind of interesting. It sounds like it's probably meant for more commercial kind of drones. Where I think there's I think there's kind of a built-in uh, failsafe for most drones where if they lose signal, they 
kind of return to their point of origin or whatever. So that's probably why this works so well is like once that signal goes out, they just kind of return. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, definitely interesting. Small sats at DOD let hundreds of programs bloom from breaking defense. To this end, he advises industry with innovative capabilities to look into the tried and true method of moving a development contract into initial operational capability and then into the hands of combatant commands rapidly via Joint Capability Technology Demonstration, or JCTD. JCTDs can be granted for research, development, test, and evaluation programs that fall below the $525 million in constant $2020 threshold for major acquisition programs. Schroeder also urged interested SATCOM and ISR vendors to send proposals under the new Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve, or RADAR fund, launched by DOD Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. Uh, DOD, he said, has already collected more than 200 industry proposals from the services and the combatant commands. Uh, So wasn't really sure, you know, what to make of all of this. They said that there's hundreds of programs kind of in in the small sat world. It wasn't really sure if they actually meant hundreds of programs or like hundreds of things kind of coming out of lesser amount of programs. But, you know, I like to hear that that kind of uh, that language. go i just we just hope it's not kind of like now right let a hundred flowers bloom uh let a hundred competing thoughts you know rain and then you just clamp them all down before anything comes of them um more to them in the proliferated architecture right yeah yeah that, it, well for one i'm i'm sort of interested about the greater because i didn't think greater was actually going to become a thing into uh, this next budget cycle so i don't i'd be surprised if they were collecting industry proposals already but maybe maybe they're getting a head start 200 is yeah, it's a little surprising. If it's, a lot. Are, it's a lot compared to what I expect the Raider Fund will actually be. Yeah, where you have to have a joint. I mean, the criteria was pretty high for that. You had to have a joint program. It had to meet like certain capability kind of thing. Well, know, I mean, how much the- money is going to be in the Raider? One to 200 million, maybe? I thought it was 200 million. Yeah. 200 million? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, 200 million for 200 industry proposals, peanut butter spread. Everyone gets a million dollars. There's your little prize. That would be a wrong way to manage that. I hope that's that's not the case. <laughs> as, but, as we said in our defense news article, right? I know. I was going to say that. <laughs> um, the other piece here, though, that why I don't like, sometimes I feel like some of these articles, like, um, it's good to acknowledge progress because this, you know, this is progress, right? Um that the, even that DOD is thinking this way and that there is, I thought that was great that, you know, they went out and looked and they actually found, you know, that many, uh, you know, that many uh, kind of efforts going on for small sets. Great. But at the same time, like we've, you, you know, a JCTD doesn't guarantee you a program of record. Not, not that I like that term, but, you know, it doesn't guarantee you an acquisition program. It doesn't guarantee you uh, procurement quantities. It doesn't guarantee you that, the, the users will actually get, um, will be able to scale, you know, a successful uh, prototype uh, into, you know, into a usable warfighting capability. So you still do need that tail end. And so, you know, don't want to don't pat ourselves on the back too much for doing lots of JCTDs uh, because you, you do eventually need to roll them into something that the services are funding and that has buy-in from the operational community. So so yeah, let these bloom. This is good. Let's get, you know, show, show progress, show success. But, you know, at, at some point we're also going to have to kind of, you know, get down to brass tacks and go, okay, which satellites do we want to, do we want to scale this? Do we want to just let STA do this? Do we want everybody doing it? How do we want to manage this? Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. 
Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how fast SDA gets absorbed, right, by the Air Force oh, and Space yeah. Force. So, so DOD, a challenging customer for fast-moving satellite broadband industry from Space News. A bright spot in DOD's adoption of low-Earth orbit satellite connectivity is defense experimentation using satellite commercial space internet, or DUCI, program. But the industry is moving much faster than DOD experiments. DOD has multiple pots of money for experiments and demonstrations of its technologies, but those can take years to transition to procurement programs to bridge the gap between OneWeb's, in this specific example's network, and government user equipment. The company announced September 7th is teamed with manufacturer Kaim to develop an electronically steered flat panel array designed to communicate with geostationary satellites using government modems with OneWeb's LEO satellites. So OneWeb here um, is coming up with their own connectivity in LEO and they're just not waiting for government, it looks like. But they are going to kind of create some kind of uh, interoperability through a geo satellite. So its ability to just kind of like send the signal back up and kind of get it translated. And then from geo, I suppose it'll go down to military user equipment. So, you know, I think that's just a kind of a realistic approach, right? <laughs> but, you know, they're kind of saying the things that we all know. It takes too long to kind of bridge this valley of death. DOD moves too slow. Uh, we're just going to kind of go do our own thing and, you know, you can buy what you can from us, but it's hard for you to affect our roadmap when you're, you're kind of, kind of bureaucratic and, you know, burdensome. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is so true of any satellite program. Uh, anytime you have a satellite program that is, uh, especially when it's serving, right. Like something like, uh, broadband is, is serving, you know, every customer, every combat customer, right. I mean, everybody's going to need probably access to that. Uh, to that system, you know, Millstar back in the day and advanced CHF and all those, all those satellites that, um, that they rely on for, for secure comps. So, so yeah, that always comes with this user equipment sort of, you know, problem because you can't just have the satellites. You need all of the different platforms that are going to connect to that satellite to, to be able to, you know, upgrade and to, you know, have their, have their equipment modernized to, 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 to enable that connection. So it's always a challenge. It was a challenge with GPS. Um, and it's, it's going to be a challenge with, uh, with other things, but I think the key is we are at an interesting point in DOD where most of our platforms, our legacy platforms are aging and there is a lot of modernization programs going on. And I think this is the point where we need to make sure that the user equipment that we install, that you know, that upgrade that we make for new, new helicopters, new you know, new combat vehicles, new aircraft, uh, actually can, you know, can actually be interfaced with multiple um, commercial satellites as well as the military ones. We need to make sure that they they have a little bit broader capability so that we're not so myopic that we have to rely on you know just. Uh, and we have done that. I mean, there has been work on that, right? Like there, there are um, Iridium, you know, the, the, the military does use Iridium for, for comms. So, so we do have some experience with this too. I just think we need to be smarter with the user equipment piece because that always seems to be the tail. And so it's not helpful to have satellites if you can't use them. I wasn't sure though, if this steer, electronically steered flat panel antenna, I didn't understand the architecture. I'd love to see the architecture of this, exactly how that, how that was envisioned to work. Yeah. Oh. Of course, we'll we'll see kind of what's going on there, but and we'll see one day maybe uh, military user equipment for GPS will 
the MGUE will eventually get fielded, right? <laughs> oh, oh man, it's going to be ten years. It'll be. It can't I, be another ten I, years. I, I, I mean, right. the geo, the the they, GPS threes are going to be like you know burning out by then. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one we got USAF's F sixteen F fifteen E completes first successful maritime JDAM test from Naval News for any large moving ship that. Air Force's primary weapon is a 2,000-pound laser-guided GBU-24. Um, not only is this weapon less than ideal, it also reduces survivability based on how it must be employed. This munition, this munition, the JDAM, can change all of that. So they didn't really talk too much about why, like, what made the JDAM, you know, superior or not. The range that it looks like on these things is the GBU-24 standoff range is 10 nautical miles. JDAM is 15 nautical miles, according to the open sources, but they also have a winged version of the JDAM that can go up to potentially 40 nautical miles. So do you know like what they were talking about in terms of, you know, in, in terms of how it must be employed? Why is the, uh, the JDAM kind of, you know, much better here than the GBU-24? The GBU-24, yeah, I mean, I think the GBU-24 is just the bomb, the bomb body. So I think they're just talking about the JDM is a kit that goes on the bombs. So it's literally just something that kind of sort of straps onto it. And I think the GBU-24 is just the 2000 pound and the laser guided pieces, like it goes like, I think it attaches on the nose or something like that. So there's like a, another piece on it. Um, but um, you probably want, oh no, I guess that's the GBU-31 is the 2000 pound GBU-24. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure on this. Like those GBUs always kind of confuse me. So I'm not sure, but the 2000 pound, I imagine for the maritime pieces, I mean, that's the biggest JDM. Um, and so they probably want something that gives a little bit more, you know, a little bit more bang uh, for the buck so that they could, uh, they can actually have some reliability of destroying a ship and gives them a little bit more range, um, you know, range of our target, uh, a circular precision. So they can, they can deviate a little bit and still achieve the, achieve the mission, but I don't know much more than that. Yeah, there's some consternation in the Twitterverse about this one where people were claiming like it's the first time the Air Force has looked at uh, trying to sink sink a ship with a bomb. And people were like, I think there was a guy named Billy Mitchell back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, Air Force awards potential $46 billion digital engineering contract vehicle from FedScoop. So 55 companies got the award um, and the award sounds pretty broad. It's for the procurement uh, of digital engineering and model-based systems engineering. And contractors will also provide services to support agile processes, open systems architecture, and weapons and enterprise analytics. So it looks like there's a bunch of stuff that can kind of go under this. You know, the big shocker was like 46 billion. Holy moly, that, that's in a humongous ceiling, but we'll see, you know, how much it actually gets obligated under this vehicle. N nothing there, Matt? Yeah, I was surprised. I looked at the, uh, the the press release. They definitely awarded it to a lot of uh, Yeah, it was rather, it was, I mean, some of these are not typical companies either. They're like, you know, typical, like these, some of these are like service contract companies. And so it's not, uh, but then there's like Aerojet in there. Uh, there's some are just like consulting companies. It's a real, it's a real mixed bag. So it's kind of interesting to see. This was clearly done for Eglin for the, a lot of the stuff that they're doing on the, um, you know, on the digital engineering for the missiles. So I have to imagine this was a little bit of one of those things where this was something Eglin was already going to do. And then they decided, okay, well, we'll open this up, you know, give a little bit of, 
you know, extra room on here. So if other folks want to use it, they can sort of leverage this, which is great, right? Like keeps, um, keeps other programs from having to kind of go do their own awards, gives a nice pool of vendors to pick from and, uh, yeah, and everybody wins, but yeah, definitely, definitely geared towards Eggland for probably some of those, um, initial awards. That's all we got time for this week. And, uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. This concludes another episode of acquisition talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.